Today's episode follows Dr. Sharon E. Nicholson to the West African Sahel, to the desert. Nicholson journeyed from being a curious young researcher, unafraid to question her superiors, to an internationally recognized research powerhouse who successfully turned a paradigm on its head and changed how climatologists think about the desert. I'm Evangeline Coker, and you're listening to Journeys in Research. Journeys in Research is a podcast conceived by Florida State University's Office of Research Development as an on-the-go resource for faculty. In each episode, we'll hear from an FSU faculty member who will share stories about their research journey. And through that shared experience, help us understand the world of research beyond the college and departmental level. So no matter what field of study our guests come from, their journeys can relate to where we are today. Dr. Sharon E. Nicholson is the Lawton Distinguished Professor of Meteorology in the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science at Florida State University. Her extensive research and publications have garnered her multiple national and international awards and honors. A few of those include the Humboldt Research Award, both a Fulbright Fellowship and a Fulbright Global Scholar Program Award. And most recently, she received the highest honor for faculty at FSU, becoming the Robert O. Lawton Distinguished Professor for 2021. Sharon, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Looking forward to it. So, Sharon, you were recently interviewed in an FSU article that said that you changed the understanding of drought and rainfall. What caused that spark that made you question the current science of the time? Well, at the time, I probably had more African rainfall data at hand from my research than anybody in the world. I spent a long time collecting the the data. And there were three main theories out there. And if you took a look at the rainfall pattern over the continent, uh, it absolutely did not fit with any of those theories. And so the theories were did not have evidence to really support them. And the rainfall data that I had actually very much and very strongly uh, contradicted each of those theories. Now, the the droughts that we're talking about were in the 1970s and 80s, and desertification was such an issue there that there was an UN desertification conference in 1976 in Nairobi, and you were there talking about those theories that they had. How, how did you find yourself there, and how did you stand up for the theories that you were starting to cultivate yourself? I had just finished my PhD a couple months before, and I was a postdoc out at uh, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And going to the UN conference was just kind of a fluke. One of our administrators had been asked to go, and he had not really done much in Africa, knew I had, and asked me to replace him. Um, So that's how I found myself over there. Now, at the conference, being very young in the field, I really did not have much an effect in terms of countering the consensus at the time. But over the next few years, I did a lot more research and became much more vocal about the fact that a lot of misinformation was being um, given out at that conference. And I was able to eventually overturn some of the major ideas about desertification in West Africa. Again, by having data at hand and interpreting it correctly. 
when you talk about the the theories of the time, these were theories about desertification being a result of human beings in the area? Yes, it was believed that um, the droughts that were taking place in the late 60s, early 1970s, uh, the idea had been, well, nobody had ever seen a drought like that before, so something new must be happening. And that theory was that what the new point was, was that humans were creating the drought through overgrazing with their animals. And that the overgrazing had destroyed desertification and through a number of feedback mechanisms that caused the desert to grow and grow. And what I was able to show was that, first of all, by looking at the long-term record over a couple of centuries, those droughts were not unprecedented. There had actually been even more extreme droughts uh, about a century and a half before that. And I was also able to show that this drought was not just in the areas that supposedly had been desertified, but we saw them over the entire continent. So clearly they were part of a very large scale meteorological phenomena. And that's basically the theory that I tried to put to rest. And for the most part, I have put that idea to rest. I think at this point, the idea is that desertification can possibly enhance the effect of a drought, possibly make the drought a little bit more severe, but it certainly did not cause the drought, unlike what the UN was saying at the time. And how did you find that those sources that, that showed you that the drought may not have been man-made, that it was going on for centuries before that? Well, two different ways. One was when I was, before I was at uh, NCAR, before this conference, I had worked in Germany for Uh, a couple of years, and I spent a lot of time at the meteorological library there, and I found a lot of old books with rainfall data for most of the countries in Africa, and I started putting together a data set. But at the same time, I had just through serendipity, when I was a grad student in Wisconsin, I found some old travel journals of some of the famous travelers in Africa, like Livingstone and Stanley, And I discovered that every one of those travelers had a major meteorological journal at the end of their report. And when you go through them, you could hear them talking about droughts. You could hear them talking about how big the lake was. You could could hear them talking about people suffering. And by putting together literally thousands of those historical records that I was able to at some point gather, I was able to show the occurrence of drought in earlier centuries. So it was twofold. One was that I actually got quantitative rainfall data. And the other was that um, I was able to put, to go through all these historical sources. So at the time, people weren't actually going through those resources like you were. They were actually looking at a very small section of research. Well, I think this was one of the first times that anybody really had used those historical sources in trying to understand the climate of Africa. Um, There were a handful of very, very superficial things done a century earlier. And there was one book published by a Czech researcher that I was able to fortunately read through. And other than that, I really was kind of the the founder of African historical climatology. So I really was the first to actually put those reports together and do a long-term chronology of what was happening in Africa over several centuries. Wow. And in terms of the rainfall data, normally it had been collected by government agencies and they would just have, they would take a handful of the records, usually those that were provided to them. None of the government 
officials that had actually gone back and looked at all the records that were there. So what was actually published was probably less than 10% of maybe even 5% of what was actually out there. That's pretty amazing that you thought of a new way of looking at weather that that wasn't being done. I don't know how a researcher today might go about that, you know, looking at their their topic and going, you know what, I'm going to dive into this from a completely different angle than has ever been done before. Well, I'm going to say that it was not a completely new angle in terms of the field of climatology because there were others, not a whole lot, but there were some other classic scientists who had done this for different parts of the world. Only most of them used actual quantitative records of what we call proxy data. You would have a river record. You would know how high the flood of the river was. You would have reports of whether or not the winter was severe or not severe. But what I used was something called documentary evidence, things where you just listen to read what people are saying and try to put together what people are saying. And I guess... There really had not been too many people who did that before, and I'm not sure how I came across it. It was just fun to read these books that I'd go through and I would look for any report I could that had to do with weather or climate at the time. That's amazing. I usually think of documentary evidence as something that would happen with humanities, you know, or or English or history or something and not uh, a science like climatology. Right, right, right in terms of trying to establish historical climatology, climate over several centuries, um, it's probably a minor tool. Um, There are so many quantitative records that people use, like tree ring records, ice core records, et cetera. So I would say there are not that many people that actually do the the documentary evidence, the documentary uh, reconstructions. And it's in some ways difficult because you don't have a benchmark. You have to interpret what they're saying. And for example, if somebody talks about how dry it is in Africa and they're from England, let's say, a lot of things would look dry to them that we might not consider to be a desert. And there are a lot of things that you really have to... um, they're subjective statements and you have to find ways to validate them. But you have to put together quite a few pieces of evidence that all lead in the same direction in order to feel that you have a point of evidence that's believable. Something that I termed as convergence of evidence. It's not always been completely safe in doing research in some of these areas. I was planning on getting some data in the country of Mauritania when my plane touched down briefly when we were on our way to Niger. And I knew that the Met Office was right there on the tarmac, and I told them that I was planning on coming in and wanted to copy down the data. And so we land, and suddenly the the announcement comes over saying there's been a coup in Mauritania, and if you're not staying in Mauritania, you could not get off the airplane. And right after that, about four or five individuals with hoods over their heads, just the slits for the eyes and machine guns come tearing into the airplane, trying to make sure that none of us got off unless we had permission. And stupidly, I went up to the flight attendant and says, I went off anyway. And 
they actually let me off. <laughs> and I went over to the Met office and they had actually copied down the data and gave it to me. And I had the airport manager escort me back onto the plane. And nothing happened, but it is kind of scary when you're on a plane and you have uh, rebels coming in with machine guns walking through the plane. <laughs> but, you know, there have been a handful of incidents like that, but my friends that actually do field work, like on the lakes or in the forest, <clears throat> they've had much more dangerous moments I've had to deal with. I've been lucky. How old were you when the incident at Mauritania happened? Oh, probably my late 20s. Wow. What was going through your mind then? Probably uh, uh, nothing sensible. The only thing going through my mind is I wanted my data. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like I've kind of left my, my, my brain behind with some of the things that I've done in Africa. But we all do things like this. So what... You may have already said it. It might have been the Mauritania story, but do you have a favorite research moment from your time in Africa? What came to my mind first is probably what was the most exciting for me momentarily, but it's probably not as interesting a story as some of the others. But it's more scientific than some of the others. And it relates to the historical work that I was talking about, the documentary evidence. There's a lake or sometimes lake in the Kalahari of Botswana. It's called Lake Ngami. And there were numerous explorers that went through the area of Lake Ngami and they all told contradictory stories. And there were also tribal chronicles talking about the lake even back in the 18th century. Like uh, one of the kings would talk about how the lake dried up and he walked across the northern area of it to go get a bride from another a tribe, things like that. And at one point, um, when a lot of the explorers were there, Lake Ngami was fairly big. But there were stories about how when it had dried up at some point in the past, there was nothing there but an almost dry riverbed and trees along the edge of the river. And that was later on when 100 years later, the lake dried up. Somebody actually saw that riverbed and that proved that that story was true. Well, during my Fulbright, I actually paid a guide to take me out to Lake Ngami. And when I was trying to find a guide, I, people kept saying, why in the world do you want to go to Lake Ngami? Nothing's out there. There's absolutely nothing out there. Well, I found a guide who thought it was interesting, took me out there, and I found that same riverbed with the trees on it. And it was, for me, an aha moment. That documentary story was really true. When Lake Ngami dried up, there really was just a little riverbed going through. And that's the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that question. I love that story. It, it makes history real. Well, there was another thing at the time that he showed me. This was the guide. He was an Anglo, but he spoke the native language as well as any of the natives there did. And he knew the environment like no one did. And he pointed out three layers of vegetation around the lake, which was dry at the time. And each one of those layers of vegetation, when he told me how old it was, it corresponded to each one of the weather episodes that I had um, decided had existed based on the documentary evidence. So this was all a real aha moment. <laughs> that is so amazing. When you, you're talking about all of this literature work, this documentary evidence that you accrued over time to help back up your theories and, and verify the, 
the desertification patterns going on in Africa. And you're a polyglot. You're fluent in German and French, and you have a reading proficiency in Czech, Russian, and Portuguese. Uh, Did you start studying these languages because of your connection with meteorology, or was this just a happy coincidence once you started your research? Um, Kind of both. Um, French, I started studying when I was um, in fifth grade, and I just enjoyed it, and it turned out to be the most useful language for me, or I should say not one of the most useful, because German also became very useful, but German I studied because I was going to Germany, and um, Czech I studied because it was sort of a family language, and I wanted to uh, learn, well, the family language was Slovak, but there were no books to self-teach Slovak, so I learned Czech, but it ended up being very useful in my African historical research, Um, and I can still read Czech to some extent using a little bit of a dictionary. My Russian, my Portuguese are very, very rusty, but Portuguese, yes, I did start to use for my research because I had planned on going to Angola and Mozambique where they speak Portuguese. And at the time it was, I hadn't, I couldn't get into Angola. Neither the Angolans or the Americans would allow me to go to Angola at the time. There was a war going on, but I did get to Mozambique and it was useful. I could say basic things like, uh, where's a restaurant? I need a hotel and give me rainfall data. <laughs> so. But yes, I would say that the language learning has been incredibly useful. Russian is the only one that I have not used professionally, and I learned it to read it only because I was given the chance to do so when I was at National Center for Atmospheric Research. You're talking about how your guide helped illuminate something about your research. You happen to be in just the right program to bring you to the UN conference. Could you talk a bit more about how your research connections played into your research and and how that helped you moving forward? It played in in various ways. Some of them were that it got me involved in major field experiments or major international programs. Uh, sometimes it got me into new areas that I hadn't thought about looking at. And as an example with that, um, on one of my research trips, somebody told me about an American woman who ran a desert research institute in the neighboring country of Namibia. And I decided to make an an appointment to see her. And again, I heard about her just through a research connection. And I got over there. I was shocked to find out that in a tiny little library in a research institute in Namibia, they actually had a copy of my doctoral dissertation. (laughs) So she happened to know a little bit about my work. And she took me under her wing and she showed me so much about the desert. I mean, she took me out in her Land Rover and we just went out for hours and hours and hours. She was explaining how dunes were formed and the interesting animals and plants that were there in the desert. And it really shifted my interest into arid lands. And I'm thinking that that was the first thing that developed my interest. It was either that or being asked to teach a course in that at at, um, Clark University. I'm not sure which was the original, but clearly that connection to her played a really big role in piquing my interest in deserts and and arid lands. In fact, I met with her again very recently when I was in Namibia last fall. And when I wrote a book on the, the dryland environments, I dedicated it to her. 
But there have been a number of cases like that um, where meeting somebody led me to um, interest. I guess I was very fortunate, maybe this is slightly off topic, but when I was very young and just getting into the African research, I was lucky to go to a handful of conferences where there were some really big names in the field. And there were not that many people doing work in African climatology, African paleoclimates at the time. And I would say that I met so many of those pioneers in the field and I was able to learn from them. And it just gave me a totally different perspective on the field as well as opening up new avenues of research, new sets of uh, research materials, et cetera. And I actually talk about that in my book. I just felt so fortunate to have started early enough that I could still come in contact with people who at the time, some were in their 70s and 80s. In fact, one gentleman was in his 90s, and he was kind of my hero for all the work he had done on this hill. So I, I felt that was a very important part of my learning experience was these connections. What is the title of that book again? Dryland Climatology. And I should say that all of the work that I did going into the field in Africa played a really big role in that book. Uh, Probably over a hundred photos of the environment in Africa that I was able to put into the book by by being there. It was a very important part of my experience. What kind of advice would you give to newer faculty uh, about making connections? Well, in terms of making the connections, um, I would say go to some of the annual meetings and probably even more important would go to the specialty meetings. Um, The annual meetings are at this point like 25,000 people uh, with just tons and tons of little pieces of information on this and that and the other thing. There are a lot of specialty meetings that are more focused, and that's where you get to meet some of the the people that you could have better connections with. Are you naturally an extrovert? Does that make it easier for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I was a complete nerd as a high school student and pretty much as an undergraduate as well. <laughs> but just making those connections is so important. You have to sort of push yourself beyond. It really is. Well, in giving me some of the questions to think about, you asked me another aspect of that, and that's something I would like to mention. You asked what other advice that I had for young people in the field of graduate students. And it's something that I feel is very important, and that is do not focus too narrowly. Um, Give yourself initially a broad enough background so that later on in your career, you might have some flexibility. Um, just don't take all your courses on one topic. Take a handful of other things. I know in my case, all three of my degrees were in meteorology, which is not very broad, but I minored in geology. And that's actually been very, very useful. So as I said, I think you should try to give yourself a very broad education, at least as an undergrad, so that you can get some flexibility. 50 years after you've started in the field, you might be wanting to retire, but you might be wanting to do something else. (laughs) You were a full-time researcher when you started a family, and one of the toughest things to do is have family and research at the same time, And but you found a way to keep those from being mutually exclusive. Uh, yes, I did, but let me 
point out that at the time, well, I, first of all, I was a single mom, but also I was almost 46 years old when my son was born. And that gives me a little bit of a different, it opens up doors for me that I was further along in my career. Um, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But the way I was able to integrate it was twofold. One is that you would not believe how many talks and lab demonstrations I gave at preschools, schools, uh, kindergartens, etc. From anything from Australia, where he went with me on a trip to um, showing how a tornado was created to talking about how you say hello in different African languages or different world languages. I spent a lot of time doing outreach in the schools when my son was young. And I have a few little booklets where some of the kids that are now still some of his best friends, now that he's in his 20s, um, gave me these little thank you notes for giving talks in their classes. And I love doing that. So that was one way. The other way is that on almost every con uh, conference I went to, I took him along. And the first time he went with me, he was only one year old. <laughs> and of course, he doesn't remember it, but he spent his first birthday in Africa watching a Zulu war dance. <laughs> and what was so funny is that was one of those specialty meetings that I would go to every four years. And every time we went to the same specialty meeting, a whole bunch of people would come up to him and say, I remember you. I celebrated your first birthday party. And he's looking like, I don't know you. But the fact that I was actually fairly far along in terms of my career and fairly well known, people not only tolerated that and a couple of times they actually paid his way or they arranged for babysitters for me. So um, that is a little bit more difficult than had I been 22 years old or 24 and trying to take a child along with me. But it's been a great experience for him. He's been on every continent but Antarctica and he's learned a lot. I was on sabbatical in Hawaii, and I was giving a talk about my experiences in the Nami Desert, and he had actually been in the Nami with me. And towards the end of the talk, everybody raises their hands to ask questions, and his hand goes up with everybody else's. And I kept ignoring him, thinking the question will either be, where's the bathroom, or when can we leave? And my colleagues kept pointing it out, saying, your son has a question, why don't you you know, call on him. So I called on him and he says, um, mom, all these photos that you were showing, when did you take them? <laughs> I said, well, you know, on my first trip over there, maybe about 20 years ago before you went with me and he looks straight in my eye and he says, then how do you know your data are still current? <laughs> <laughs> you cannot believe the roar in that room. <laughs> I had colleagues at meetings later on at different locations come up to me and heard about <laughs> the incident. <laughs> but it made him, he did pay attention to what I was saying. Wow. <laughs> How old was he? Probably eight or nine, I'm uh, thinking. <laughs> Not real old. <laughs> That's great. He's, he's talking like a researcher. <laughs> <laughs> So it was easier in a way to integrate the two family and research at that time, that stage in life. I do believe so. Yes. There are disadvantages and advantages to waiting so long. Mm. And as you see, I waited very long. Um, but again, it's something you should not give up on either. And, you know, if, 
young researcher, if they want a family, they don't have to start a family by 30. You know, they can get settled before going and starting the family, get a little bit more established, know the ways, know what conferences you can go to where they have child care services, know people you can rely on. That's a great point. It, it, it may just be that for certain seasons, you focus on certain aspects of your life. And that doesn't mean the other won't ever happen. Yeah. Right. But personally, I, I felt that it, it has not been that difficult to integrate having a family and doing my research, even though I was a single mom. For those who are just starting out as, as faculty researchers, uh, what might you advise them to be focused on during this time? Well, they actually have to focus on certain things because there's certain expectations about the number of courses you teach and the number of publications. Um, but what I would say is I've seen too many young researchers who just stress themselves out because they're so worried that they're not going to make it. And I think that a lot of departments are very supporting of young scientists. And I would say that, yes, try to do your work, but try to make sure you're enjoying it too. That's wonderful advice. Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. To stay up to date with content, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, including show notes for this episode, go to journeysinresearch.podbean.com or visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ord at fsu.edu with the word podcast in the title. Music for this episode by Ketza. Special thanks to C.C. Pierre and our guest, Sharon E. Nicholson. I'm your host, Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening.